Well, you're getting ready for missions conference, and uh, I know we're all excited about it, the opportunity to talk to people about Christ. One of the occasions that I had over the last six weeks was a, a boat trip up the St. Lawrence Seaway. We had a number of people on the ship, friends of the college, the seminary, and the radio ministry, but there was a young couple that came along who were not Christians. And at the very beginning of the week, I prayed for the salvation of that couple. Just prayed that the Lord would somehow work it out. Somebody had paid their way, non-Christians, both of them graduated from UCLA, just a beautiful young couple, really neat. And uh, he was just starting into his career and all of this. And somebody paid their way in hopes that they might come to know the Lord. And so I prayed for them at the very beginning that the Lord give opportunity for us to share the gospel with them. Well, we would meet each day for Bible study, and they kind of, I could see them sitting on the back, kind of hanging on the fringes, and um, not knowing whether they were really interested in this whole deal or not, because they weren't Christians. There's a lot of jargon and a lot of stuff going on when a lot of Christians get together they couldn't relate to. And about the third day, I made the statement that we are chosen by God for salvation. And it was in a passing way in the midst of something I was teaching. And apparently it struck a chord with the young lady. Her name was Sheila. And so after the session was over, she came up to me and she said, Excuse me, could I bother you? I have a question. And I said, Sure. She said, uh, How do you know if you're chosen by God? And I said, Well, the only way you can know you were chosen is if you come to faith in Jesus Christ. We don't know who God has put his hand on until they're saved. She said, well, how do you get saved then? I said, would you like me to explain that to you? She said, yes. And I said to her husband, uh, would you like to have the knowledge of how to be saved too? And he said, well, he said, I I'd be willing to listen. So I said, well, why don't I come up to your room and I'll explain it all to you. Yes, she said, please do. So I went up to their room and sat down. She said, now, I have to tell you that because these people sent us on this trip and I knew that there was going to be the teaching of the Bible, she said, I felt that it was only fair for me to read the Bible before I came. I said, well, good. What part did you read? She said, all of it. I said, all of it? She said, yeah, all the way from Genesis to Revelation. It took me three months, but I felt I should read it all. I said, well, that's very good, Sheila. That's, that's wonderful. And he said, I didn't read it, you know. Well, she said, you know, I'm very interested in Christianity now after reading the Bible, but my husband's much more interested in Buddhism. He leans toward Buddhism, and I lean toward, toward being saved. It's the phrase she used. But she said, sometimes, you know, she said, I love my husband so much. She said, I love him so much that sometimes I think I'd rather go to hell with him than go to heaven without him. And so sometimes I don't think maybe I want to become a Christian because I think it might separate us. Not only in the future, but it might separate us even now because I would be experiencing something he wouldn't be experiencing. Isn't that right? And I said, yeah, that's right. Well, I said, let's talk about the gospel. So I went into about an hour-long explanation, every detail I could think about the gospel, and she was calculating it all in her mind. If I, if I commit myself to Christ, it's going to mean separation from my family. It's going to mean separation from my husband in terms of the spiritual dimension. And she was weighing all of that in her mind. She understood the gospel and all of that. 
So I got all done with this whole thing, and she said, Now, tell me more about what will happen between me and my husband if I become a Christian. She's counting the cost. I said, Well, you'll have a spiritual dimension of life that he will not understand. You will have a personal relationship with the living God through Christ, and he won't, and it will cause a separation at that point. But I said there's a compensating factor, and I opened the Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and I said it says in here that the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the believing wife. In other words, now that you become a Christian, God's going to pour so much blessing on you, it's going to spill on him. So being married to a Christian wife is a lot better than being married to a non-Christian wife, even for him. Because now he is going to benefit from God blessing you. And she said, oh, that, oh that's wonderful. Um, she said, then I think I want to be saved. And she said, what do I do? And I said, well, you just tell the Lord what's in your heart. Just acknowledge your sin to him and tell him you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you want to follow Christ. You want him to save you. And she said, okay, do I just, do I just say it? Do I have to say it in that same order? I said, no, you can say it in any order you want. It's just the general idea. She said, well, I, well, I'd like to do that then. And I said, fine, that's great. And uh, I said to him, I said, uh, do, you, do you mind? Uh, how do you feel about all this? He said, well, I want her to be happy. And, and this is something she wants, and I, I want her to be happy. So I, I said, well, great. And I left. And she told me she was going to pray. So the next morning, she came up to me at the Bible study, and she says, um, she said, could I ask you a favor? I said, sure. She said, uh, could you come up to my room again and pray for me? She said, I tried it last night. I'm not sure it worked. <laughs> she said, I don't know what I'm supposed to feel, but I, I, I just I think it, I think you need to come and pray. I said, OK, I'll come. So I'm back up in the room again. They're there. And I just I just prayed that God would save her. And she was just so serious, you know, and he's just sort of sitting there, you know, just taking it all in a very gracious spirit. And she, I prayed, and then she prayed, and I left. And a little while later, she came running up to me, and she said, uh, I need some tapes. I said, well, let me suggest such and such a tape. No, 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 I need lots of tapes. I said, well, there's a certain album. She said, no, I looked at the book table. I need more than that. And you could see the appetite was already there. And she said, I need books. Give me books for a new Christian. I said, well, well okay. Uh, uh, let's go over to the book table. Oh, she said, I looked over there. I need more than that. So she said, I have a list of things I want to know about. Could you send them to me? I'll, I'll give you the money. I said, no, I don't want any money. She gave me a long list of everything she wanted to know about. So I knew that she had passed from death unto life because the appetite was there. And he's just standing there smiling, has no clue what's going on. <laughs> then the most amazing thing happens. She comes up to me later in the day and she says, you'll never believe what happened. They have bingo on this ship in the afternoon. Now, I hadn't even had a chance to tell her, you know, about all the little ins and outs of the Christian life, like gambling and things like that, you know. She said, my husband and I, my husband said, why don't we go down to the bingo? We haven't gone all week. Let's go down to bingo. And you know what? He bought me a $7 bingo card. And guess what? I won the week's jackpot of $1,200. Now, you tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor. 24 hours ago, I'm telling this guy that when his wife becomes a Christian, God's going to bless her. It's going to spill on him. 
she walks out of the bingo parlor. He's got 1,200 bucks in his back pocket. He's saying, I think this works. <laughs> what an unbelievable situation. So now he had all these intellectual questions about the Bible. Now he's trying to figure out it isn't an intellectual issue anymore. The blessing came within 24 hours to the tune of $1,200. Now the Lord is so gracious. And it was so thrilling to be a part of the salvation of someone and just watch that process. Um, and you know, it was really, in a sense, an answer to prayer because the first day out I had prayed that God would uh, would save that couple. And of course, I don't think he's got a chance of resisting at this point because she is so on fire and he loves her so much that there's such a bond there that by the grace of God, we trust that the salvation of her husband will occur very soon. Praying for people's salvation. Is that important? Boy, it sure was that week. The Lord gave me a direct answer. I remember when I was a seminary student, a book came out, and that book was all about praying, and it said that you should not pray for lost people, that there's nothing in the Scripture to, to indicate you should pray for the lost, that all you want to do is pray for the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers, the thesis was, but you don't need to pray for the lost. I want to take that to task a little bit this morning, and I want you to get your Bibles and kind of follow along. It'll take about a half an hour of Bible study to really uh, deal with that issue of praying for lost people. Let me give you a few scriptures. If you want to jot them down, you can. If you want to try to follow along, you can try. Numbers chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. I want to take you all the way back, give you a little pattern here. Numbers chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Now the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. This is the complaining children of Israel. They were complaining about their lot. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of them on the outskirts of the camp. There are some murmuring unbelievers in the camp of Israel complaining about what God is doing. And God sends fire, burns them all up. Look at verse 2. The people therefore cried out to Moses and Moses, what? Prayed to the Lord and the fire died out. Moses there prays for the unbelieving, complaining, unthankful Israelites not to be consumed by the fire of God's judgment. That is a form of evangelistic praying. In Deuteronomy 14 and verse 19, Moses cried, Pardon, I beseech thee, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of thy mercy. And again, in chapter 14, verse 19, he's praying for the salvation of his people. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 12. 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 23. Moreover, as for me, says Samuel, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And what kind of prayer is it? It's an evangelistic prayer. He's praying for people who are caught up in evil and iniquity and futility and who have dishonored the name of God. He says in verse 24, Fear the Lord and serve Him in truth with all your heart, for consider what great things He has done for you. But if you do continue to do wickedly, you and your king shall be swept away. 
he's praying for them. And he says, if I don't do this, if I don't pray for you, I have sinned against the Lord. Isn't that an interesting thing? Not only is praying for the lost important, not to do it is to sin against the Lord. We find another illustration of this in Jeremiah. Jeremiah obviously was confronted with a wicked, sinful people, warning them about the judgment of God to come upon them. It was his place to to remind them that God would judge their wickedness and judge their sinfulness. But they had gone so far that in Jeremiah 7 and then over in chapter 14, we'll look at 14, 14, 10, and 11. The Lord said to Jeremiah and to the people, Even so, they have loved to wander, Jeremiah 14, 10. They have not kept their feet in check. Therefore, the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and call their sins to account. So the Lord said to me, do not pray for the welfare of this people. Wow. The assumption here is that up until this point, what had Jeremiah been doing? Praying for them. God had to tell him to stop, not to start. Say, so why did God tell him to stop? Because they had gone past the point of God's grace. They had gone past the point of God's mercy. They had rejected fully God's grace and call. And so he says, stop praying for them. The implication is he was praying for them. The psalmist in Psalm 25, 22 says in his prayer, Redeem Israel, O God. Samuel called all the sinning people of Israel together at Mizpah in 1 Samuel 7. And he said, if you will return to the Lord with all your heart, I will pray for you. So way back in the Old Testament, there was a commitment to pray for sinning, unbelieving people. Hezekiah, the king, knowing the wicked hearts of his people, gathered together at Jerusalem for the Passover and knowing they had not cleansed themselves and their keeping of the Passover was a hypocrisy. Prayed for them, and this is what he said, Second Chronicles 30, verses 18 and 19. The good Lord pardon everyone who prepares his heart to seek God. There is Hezekiah the king praying for the lost. Daniel chapter 9, verses 17 and 19. Daniel prays for the lost. Stephen, you remember when he was being crushed under the bloody stones that were taking his life in Acts 7, said to God, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge, which is another way of saying what? Forgive them. Forgive them. What did Jesus pray on the cross? Father, what? Forgive them. They know not what they do. I believe it was the constant prayer of the Apostle Paul that Israel should be saved. He says in Romans 9, 3, I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. And then in chapter 10, verse 1, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Paul prayed for the salvation of Israel. When is the last time you prayed for someone's salvation? Someone you knew, someone you knew of, someone you didn't know. Part and parcel of God's redemptive work is to do His work 
by means of human instrumentation. Not only human instrumentation in the witness, but human instrumentation in the intercession. But the best passage in all of Scripture to help us with this is 1 Timothy 2. Let's look at it. 1 Timothy chapter 2. And I think that this will, will give you deep insight into the responsibility we have for evangelistic praying. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. First of all, then, he says, the first subject of his concern in dealing with uh, the church. He, you remember Timothy is in Ephesus when he gets this letter, and he's responsible to lead the church at Ephesus. So Paul says after the opening chapter, uh, somewhat introductory, the first issue facing the church that I want to discuss, the first thing on my mind, the first subject, the priority is prayer, and the priority for prayer is to pray for the lost. That's his first concern. I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men. Now, if you're praying for all men, you must be praying evangelistically because obviously all men are not saved. There are four words used for prayer here, entreaties, prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings. The first one, entreaties, is usually translated supplications. It is, um, it is a prayer that rises from an observation of need. The verb, uh, the, 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 the noun rather, in uh, the Greek language comes from a verb which means to, to have lack of something. So it is the recognition that someone lacks something and you're pleading for what is lacking. It also carries the idea of having an audience with the king. So you're going before the king or the sovereign or the one who rules, and you're interceding on behalf of someone who has a lack. In this case, they lack salvation, and you go to the God of salvation with that petition. The second is the word prayers. That simply means petitions in a general sense. It is used of sacred, reverent, worshipful prayers. It's the word used, for example, in Matthew regarding the disciples' prayer. Then there is the word, the third word he uses, petitions. Actually, intercession suggests pleading on behalf of others. These are really synonyms that have very close meanings. And the final one is thanksgiving. You go to God petitioning, you go to God pleading, you go to God because you recognize some people have need, and you go to God with a thankful heart, the true spirit of prayer, knowing that a sovereign God will answer according to His own will, and you'll be thankful for that. Evangelistic praying, then, is a personal compassion for and involvement with the dire situation of the lost so that we reverently go to God pleading on their behalf thankful for his response. We are to intercede with compassion, with involvement, with concern for the lost. Now, that's evangelistic praying. That's the nature of it. It is intercession on behalf of the lost with compassion because of their dire need in an attitude of thankfulness to God. That's the nature of evangelistic praying. Look at the scope of it. How widespread is it? Verse 1, on behalf of all men. It is unlimited. The whole of unredeemed humanity. All men, by the way, is mentioned again in verse 4. 
And again in verse 6, a ransom for all. A lot of alls in this passage, and the implication is that we're to be praying for all men regarding salvation. Then to help us sort of with a sample group, look at verse 2. For example, kings and all who are in authority. That's a, a sample group because of the importance of their lives and leadership in nations, because of the important impact they can have on the church and on the spread of the gospel. And note this, why does he pick this group? Because these would tend to be the people that early Christians would resent. Did you get that? Why? Because they were living in a persecuting environment. At the very time Paul wrote this letter, there was initiating an outbreak of persecution from Rome against Christians that would spread to all of the Roman Empire and eventually cost Paul his head. And it would be very easy for Christians living in that time to resent the kings and those who are in authority. And if there was anybody that you sort of cursed and damned and didn't pray for, it might be them. And so the Apostle Paul almost catches Timothy off guard when he says, you are to pray for the salvation of all men. But let me give you an example. Kings and all who are in authority. Kings would include the Emperor Nero. At that time it was Nero, and we all know about Nero. A murderous individual. All that are in authority would be officials, magistrates, judges, proconsuls, tetrarchs, generals, town clerks, soldiers, good, bad, beneficent, cruel, peaceful, warlike, all of them. And the issue here is a context of salvation. Pray for the salvation of all men, particularly your leaders, no matter how hostile they might be. I've talked on a number of occasions to Christians who went through the terror of Eastern Europe and never lost their perspective, whether in the Soviet Union or Eastern Europe, when they were being persecuted and sometimes thrown in prison, keeping the perspective of always praying for the salvation of their leaders, no matter how hostile they were. You pray that God will, in His mercy, save them. Such practice can also be seen in 2nd and 3rd century documents in the church. Prayer for rulers was a common part of Christian worship. Whenever the early church came together, it seems, in the 2nd and 3rd century, they prayed for their rulers by name and even the cruelest of them. May I make a suggestion that the church would be well advised to do less political activism and a lot more prayer on behalf of their leaders? Instead of all of this political activism to try to remove people from office that don't fit our agenda, we are enjoined in the Bible to pray for their salvation. That's a perspective I think we lose out on. I mean, I look at things like Operation Rescue and I see in many ways the antithesis of what honors God. Although the cause is right, the hostility is wrong. Instead of trying to manipulate, intimidate, cajole and irritate our leaders and those in authority over us, we ought to be pleading with God for their salvation. 
You can ask yourself the question when you read Acts 7 where Stephen is being crushed under the bloody stones and ask God to forgive the ones that are killing him. Remember that who was in charge of that execution? Do you remember? They were all laying their garments at the feet of what man? Saul of Tarsus. Could it be that the conversion of Paul was an answer to the prayer of Stephen? And what about... Paul and Silas in the jail, singing and praying. Could it be that the conversion of the jailer was an answer to the prayers of Paul and Silas? Spurgeon said many years ago that the soul winner must be a master of the art of prayer. Our Lord even taught us to intercede for the lost in Matthew 5, 43 and 44. But it seems as though we believe in this generation that we can get more done through attacking the leaders and the rulers that we don't like than we can through prayers. And that's sad because the weapons of our warfare are spiritual. They are not fleshly. We do not win spiritual battles by political activism. We win spiritual battles by prayer. If the church used its energies in intercessory prayer for the salvation of our leaders, we would accomplish far more than ever we could with all the energy being used up in all this activism. God has defined for us what our weapons are. Why is it that we fall prey to the useless weapons of the flesh? So we see the extent we are to pray for all men, even those in authority over us. Would you notice the benefit of this? In verse 2, the benefit of it in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Paul affirms that prayer, while intended for the salvation of others and the glory of God, will also create a national condition favorable to the furtherance of the gospel. This is a side effect. If the church is lovingly, compassionately, benevolently interceding for its leaders... The leaders are going to treat it differently than if the church is hostile, aggressive, troublesome. He says one of the benefits to the church is that they will be able to lead a quiet and peaceable life. Quiet means the absence of outside disturbance. Peaceable means the absence of inside disturbances. We should seek, now follow this young people, we should seek to make the unbelievers around us our friends rather than our enemies. You may have somebody that you know that you don't like at all. You may have somebody in your community lives near you or somebody that's in your little world, somebody you work alongside that is an unbeliever and they live a dissolute kind of life and, and they irritate you with the, the, the way they live their life. Do you find yourself drawn to revulsion toward them or do you find yourself drawn to intercession for them? If you reject them and you feel hostile and angry and revulsed by them, that's not the right attitude. Your attitude should be one of compassion. How else do you expect an unbeliever to act? If we're going to, if we're going to lead a quiet and peaceable life, if we're going to have a tranquil environment in which we can evangelize people, it's going to be when the leaders over us understand the compassion of our hearts for their salvation. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if uh, this school and... If all, if all of us committed ourselves to the process of, pl of praying for the leaders at all levels around us, 
so that they began to be aware that we were having a concerted effort on behalf of them. Be nice to pick up the signal sometime and say day of prayer held at the Master's College for the leaders of Newhall, Santa Clarita, Los Angeles. Pray for their salvation. He says in verse 2 that it will allow us to lead a tranquil, quiet life in all godliness and dignity. We want that. We want to be able to live godly lives with dignity. We want to be able to live peaceably and quiet in the world. And the path to that is not insurrection. The path to that is intercession. And what Paul seems to be saying is that the greatest opportunities for the expansion and reception of the gospel will come when men and women see Christians as models of virtue, models of love, models of compassion, whose constant concern and prayer is the salvation of all. Go to verse 3. Here he gives the reason for this evangelistic praying. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior. He says you ought to do it because it is morally right. This is good. It's just right. It's intrinsically excellent. Kalan, it's noble. It's spiritually noble. You do it just because it's right. I like that. Secondly, it's consistent with God's will. It is not only right, but it is acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. It is God's will. God is not willing that any should what? Perish, 2 Peter 3, 9. But that all should come to repentance. So it is consistent with God's will. It is right. It is what God wants. And then look at verse 5. This is such a tremendous statement. It is reflective of God's nature as one, for there is one God. Boy, I wish we had time to develop that thought. Contrary to the religions of men, there is only one God. There is not one God for the Muslims and one God for the Buddhists and one God for the Jews and one God for the Christians. There are not millions of gods for the Hindus. There is only one God. And the central truth of Scripture is that the Lord our God is one Lord. If there were many gods, there could be many ways of salvation. And men could be saved any way their God wanted them to be saved, and there would be no need for evangelism. But there is only one God, and through Him there is only one plan of salvation, and therefore there is only one path. And thus, we must evangelize. We must evangelize because it's right. We must evangelize through prayer because it's the will of God. And we must pray evangelistically because there's only one God, so there's only one way of salvation. Would you notice what else he says? It is consistent with the person of Christ. Back to verse 5. There is only one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. There is only one who intervenes between God and man to form the relationship. There is only one God-man. There is only one mediator. There is only one who can bring man and God together. One God and only one mediator. 
And so we must pray that people come to salvation through Christ, because it's the only way. Fifthly, he says, you ought to do it because it is the intention of the atoning work. Verse 6, he gave himself as a ransom for all. And if he gave himself as a ransom for all, that means a, a substitute ransom. He paid the price for the release of sinners. He's not trying to give us a complex theology here of atonement, but simply saying that Christ died for all. So if it is right, and if it is the will of God, and if there's only one God, and therefore only one way of salvation, and if Jesus Christ is the only mediator who can bring you on that way, and if that is the reason He died, then it seems reasonable we ought to pray for everybody, right? That's His point. So there is motivation for this. Further, Paul adds... In verse 7, And for this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. It's also our calling, isn't it? You say, well, I'm not a preacher and I'm not an apostle. Yeah, but you have been called a witness, haven't you? You say, I don't know if I've been called to be a witness. Try this one on, Acts 1.8. But you shall be witnesses unto me after the Spirit has come upon you, right? Did the Spirit come upon you when you were saved? What are you? I'm a witness. Because it is morally right, because it is the will of God for all men, because there is only one God, because there is only one mediator, because he died as a ransom for all men, and because we are called to preach and teach and be witnesses to all men, we must pray evangelistically for all the lost. That's why in verse 8 he sums it up. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. The Lord wants us to pray. He wants us to pray for a lot of things. But the primary issue here is to pray for the lost. I started by telling you the little story about Sheila. Because as I've thought back on that little story... A profound, profound miracle took place. The miracle that changed the course of that young lady's life forever. That took her out of the kingdom of darkness and put her into the kingdom of God's dear son. That made her pass from death to life. Sent her toward heaven instead of hell. Took her from judgment to glory. And the day or two before it happened, I had prayed for them. God uses us as instruments of witness, but He also uses us as instruments of intercession. You say, well, now, wait a minute. If she was chosen before the foundation of the world to be saved, would she have been saved without your participation? Well, I'm not sure I can unscrew all the mysteries of the divine mind, but I would say if she was chosen from the, the foundation of the earth to be saved... That God not only processed her salvation, but God worked into it the components that would bring it about. From a theoretical viewpoint, if it hadn't have been me, it would have been someone else. But I thank God that he allowed me the privilege for the sheer joy and thrill of being there when it happened, right? And seeing his hand in my life. 
Why miss the exhilarating privilege of seeing your prayers answered? To say nothing of obedience. Let me encourage you, young people, as you go out this week, before you get out to wherever you're going to go, to spend some diligent time in prayer and pray that God will save some people. And as you begin to meet them, pray for their salvation. Start to cultivate that in your life. And just in response to your prayer to save someone, watch how God will use you from being the intercessor to start with, in many cases, to being the witness. It's going to be my prayer along with yours all week for those lost folks that you're going to touch by God's grace that the Spirit may have their hearts prepared. Let's bow in prayer. Father, what a great time to be together this morning and be reminded that we are instruments of yours, vessels fit for the Master's use we would be. We want to be useful as intercessors for the lost, that they might be saved. We want to be useful as witnesses to bring them the message of the gospel. Even now, Lord, we pray for those we don't even know that we'll meet this week. Save them, Lord. Save them. Save them from hell. Save them from judgment. Save them unto eternal life. And, Lord, lead us to those that you would have here. And may we be faithful to intercede on their behalf and to present the truth. And may there be rejoicing in heaven at the end of this week for the prodigals that have returned, the lost sheep that have been found. Thank you for the privilege of participating in our prayers and in our testimony. We give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.